are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with his step on pride, step number 23. If you happen to be using a different text, and uh, it's paragraph 11 or saying 11 on page 171. And uh, if you remember, he entitles it Mad Pride on Mad Pride, uh, which already, I think, indicates to us uh, what what pride does to us as human beings, that it distorts uh, our vision, certainly of ourselves, of God, and of reality itself. Uh, we no longer see uh, our life or how we've been created by God in the way that God intends. And so the way that we engage in our life, uh, the world around us uh, becomes distorted and very difficult, I think, to unmoor ourselves uh, from the effects of it on our lives. And so uh, John will begin uh, shortly to discuss some of the remedies that the fathers uh, give us. Uh, but with these next few little sayings, he's still beginning, he's still uh, unpacking for us what pride looks like. So again, number 11. He who refuses reproof shows his passion, pride, but he who accepts it is free of this fetter. And um, you know, this is where often, I think, in our day-to-day -day conversation that our defenses go up. Uh, when somebody reproves us or disagrees with us, but especially when somebody's calling into question our actions or behavior, we can move to a very defensive position. And uh, But for someone who is free of pride, uh, if you remember, humility is truthful living. And so there is a love of the truth, uh, uh, and truth not just in an abstract way, but uh, Christ who is truth that we are, will embrace the truth about ourselves, even if it's uh, sin, uh, our sin and our weakness, our poverty. And so a person who's free of pride is going to be able to embrace uh, a reproof and even embrace it joyfully uh, insofar as it does free us from the delusion that often emerges when we are immersed in our sin. And uh, But a person who is wrapped in the passion of pride is going to cling to that delusion uh, and even fight for it to maintain it. Number 12, an angel fell from heaven without any other passion except pride. So we may ask whether it is possible to ascend to heaven by humility alone, without any other of the virtues. Uh, it's one of the, the great sayings of Climacus, that you know, as an angel fell because of pride, or in some text, and I, I think maybe it's even further on, uh, if pride made a demon out of an angel, perhaps humility can make an angel out of demons. And so uh, you know, if we are able to humble ourselves before the Lord, we are truly exalted. We are lifted up uh, out of the darkness of our sin and into an intimacy with the Lord. Number 13. 
Pride is loss of wealth and sweat. They cried, but there was none to save, no doubt because they cried with pride. They cried to the Lord, and he heard them not, no doubt because they were not trying to cut out the faults against which they prayed. There's a reference here to Psalm 17, but uh, the interesting part, I think, is the first sentence, the loss of wealth and sweat, that we can spend our life laboring, uh, not only for the things of this world, but also all the things that uh, elevate us in, in the sense of our own self-esteem, self-image, our ego, or even in the spiritual life. We can labor uh, in fast and vigils and things like this to the point of wearing the body. Uh, but if we are filled with pride over it, all of it can be lost. All of it can be for naught. And so pride can undo uh, all the things that we create with our, our hands or by our own will. And this is where we have to be very careful in the spiritual life, that we can be often so willful in our day-to-day -day decisions, but we can even be willful in our spiritual practices, taking up the things that seem fitting to us or that are attractive to us or in some ways uh, strengthen our ego. And so we can take on rigorous fasting beyond our strength or vigils to the point of weakening ourselves, all again to feed this re religious uh, self-image. And here John is telling us uh, all of it can be lost because of pride. Number 14, a most learned elder spiritually admonished a proud brother, but he in his blindness said, forgive me, father, I am not proud. The wise elder said to him, what clear proof of this passion could you have given us, son, than to say, I am not proud. And so any person, uh, if they have any bit of self-knowledge or self-awareness, is going to understand that we all struggle with uh, a kind of narcissism. We are all self-focused in one form or another, and that this gives birth to pride within the mind and the heart. And... Uh, not one of us escapes it. And so it is something that we have to battle about. And so to profess that one is without pride or to say that I'm humble uh, reveals a, a profound lack of self-awareness uh, and certainly on a spiritual level, a profound lack of awareness. Such people can be helped by submission a more rigorous and humiliating life, and the reading of the supernatural feats of the fathers. Perhaps even then there will be little hope for salvation for those suffering from this malady. And so living a life of, of obedience, and whether uh, that's within a, a monastery, where one is obedient to certainly the superior or the abbot, novice master, junior master, or uh, simply living in obedience to an elder, uh, that where one is setting aside one's own will can uh, be something that can pull a person out of it. And uh, we're often warned by the fathers not to pick a spiritual director who uh, sees things necessarily in the way that we see them. Uh, because we might be looking for someone who is going to agree with us and with our perspective on the church, on the spiritual life, and so be feeding in to what it is that we want, again, uh, for our spiritual life, or what path or uh, practices we would want to embrace that someone who is given over to gluttony shouldn't choose as a spiritual director, one who's gonna have a, a plate of candies sitting out on the table when they come for spiritual direction. You know, they would want somebody uh, who's more abstemious and uh, who would be encouraging uh, the practice of fasting. Or, or if someone is uh, 
say, given over to pride and clings to their own self-judgment, having someone who is a little bit more stern and is able to communicate things directly uh, to pierce through that thick shell of pride. And we see uh, Christ doing this, Jesus doing this in the gospel with the scribes and the Pharisees. Some of his words are very pointed and very direct with them. And uh, not because of a natural harshness on his part, of course, but rather out of a desire to overcome that pride, to break through it, that there was a sense that there was no need for repentance and that he was this upstart from Galilee and, you know, who was he to speak in such a way? And once a kind of jealousy and envy began to emerge, then malice followed very quickly uh, to the point that they wanted to destroy him. And he was quickly exiled from the synagogues and had to take to the shore and the roadside and the sea to preach even from a boat. Uh, but, uh, when the crowds begin to follow, and certainly when the miracles begin to emerge, the multiplication of the loaves, and when he began to speak in a more piercing way, uh, especially pointing to those Gentiles within the Old Testament who uh, were able to respond in faith, uh, this was often too much for them to bear. And more than once, we hear them uh, wanting to put him to death or taking him out to the brow of a hill, ready to throw him off. And uh, and so we see him engaging uh, those with pride in, a, in sometimes in a very fierce way. And part of it is because of what is described here, that sometimes there is a kind of humiliation that must knock a person off of a uh, 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 the pedestal that they've built for themselves. And uh, we are made humble. It's not a virtue that we can sort of create on our own. Uh, uh, we, we can foster and help foster a spirit of, of repentance, of compunction for our sin. But it's often the realities of our life that humble us, that reveal to us our, the fragility of our life the, the uh, darkness and the weakness of our intellect, even if we are very intelligent, we don't see all ends. We don't see the truth about all things and certainly not the truth about ourselves or others. And often there are certain things in our, our life that humble us or even humiliate us, bring us low uh, and in God's providence in order that something might awaken within us, our, our need for mercy, for compassion, for God's grace in our life. And uh, when we hear fraternal correction spoken of in the scripture, uh, you know, there is this kind of gentleness that is prescribed, you know, first speak to a person individually, then perhaps with another, if they resist, and then the church as a whole, and then we even hear that, well, one is to uh, give them over to Satan, that is allow them to experience the full consequence of, their, of the poverty of their sin. And uh, with the hope uh, that seeing that, eventually they will emerge uh, with a humble heart, having come to see that it bears no fruit for them and no joy. And... Uh, and so it is for all of us. We, you know, if there's any virtue, I think that we seek to foster and be open to, it is this one. Number 15. Such people, I'm sorry. Uh, number 16. It is shameful to be proud of the adornments that are not our, your own. But utter madness to fancy one deserves God's gifts. Be exalted only by such achievements as you had before your birth. But what you received after your birth, as also birth itself, God gave you. Only those virtues which you have obtained without the cooperation of the mind belong to you. Because your mind was given you by God. 
Only such victories as you have won without the cooperation of the body have been accomplished by your efforts, because the body is not yours, but a work of God. So basically, John is saying, <laughs> uh, unless you're an angel, and even then, uh, you know, have no pride. Everything has been given to you as a gift. Your very life, your capacity to think, to reason, your your body with which to do things. And so anything that you've done before your birth, you can say that you own. Uh, but uh, uh, other than that, nothing. Do not be self-confident until you hear the final sentence passed upon yourself, bearing in mind the guest who got as far as joining in the marriage feast and then was bound hand and foot and cast out into the outer darkness. So one who is lacking the wedding garment. And, you know, certainly there are a number of different interpretations that one could have of what exactly that is, but it is, I think, in the simplest way, we could think of it as having put on Christ or put on the mind of Christ or having clothed ourselves with Christ. And uh, that a person, you know, who comes to that moment uh, of judgment, uh, even if they've lived a good life uh, outside of what one has received in and through Christ, uh, no one is worthy uh, of the kingdom. And as we've often talked about here in the past, that it's not just natural virtue or the height of natural virtue or being good people that we are seeking in the Christian life, but it's uh, conformity to Christ, but also uh, the ultimate end is deification, participation by grace in the very life of the Trinity. And uh, so this is what we are to strive for. And in fact, Christ tells us it's a narrow path uh, and that we are to strive throughout the course of our, our life until the very end of it to enter uh, by the narrow gate and to agonize to do so. Uh, if you remember, the word strive is agon, from which we get the word ag agony. And so throughout the course of our life, at every moment, we are not to, to relax uh, ourselves in the pursuit of God and the things of God. And as Isaac says, you know, for us, there is no Sabbath rest within the world in regards to the spiritual life. We don't take a rest from God or a rest from the life of virtue or a vacation from the spiritual life. And uh, that last one can be a hard thing because sometimes when people go on vacation, they go on vacation from Christ. You know, if I'm going to the beach, uh, I don't know if there's any Catholic churches nearby or that are convenient. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that uh, we have a tendency to rationalize. Or if we have company, you know, I can't take that time for prayer or to say the divine office or to go to, again, to go to church or to make my holy hour, that we often can be timid in holding on to those things in the face of the, the uh, awareness of others or others watching us do, doing it or being aware of it. And, uh, and so can't be confident until the very end. Sharon Fisher writes, maybe a dumb question, but I think of deification as something we acquire gifted at the end times. Are we to strive for deification in this worldly life? Well, it is a gift for us, and the immediate aim of the spiritual life uh, the fathers put before us uh, and in particular Cassian, but the other father, fathers follow along with his thought, is purity of heart. That by the grace of God and through the ascetic life, we seek to remove every impediment within our minds and our hearts to loving and giving ourselves in love. And so we strive even now to participate in the fullness of that life. Uh, this is what has been given to us, that... Uh, the spirit of God 
uh, dwells within our hearts. We begin to, we become temples of God the Most High. We enter into union and communion through our reception of the Holy Eucharist. We become one with the Lord. It's an act of consummation. There's this nuptial imagery and reality that we are to understand that the, the Eucharist is not only something that's strengthening us in the spiritual life in an abstract kind of way, like a vitamin, that what we are entering into is the intimacy with the living God uh, in and through our receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And so this process of deification of being drawn into that fullness of life is to begin now. So this reality should alter our self-identity, how we live our life, and how we engage everyone. If this is who we are, if we are living in union with the triune God, and that Christ is the first fruits of this reality, and we see uh, you know, our great feast day is the ascension, you know, our, our very humanity is raised raised up. Uh, and so we catch a glimpse of what we are to become. Uh, that this is not something in the distant future. And I think that's often our struggle. We When we read the scriptures, we often read them as past history. And so the things that Christ said or that he did or that took place took place 2,000 years ago rather than being a living reality, the word of God being a, a living reality for us now. And uh, the words of, say, John the baptizer being as real for us as they were for the people in the Jordan, repent. Uh, but also the promises. I think we have the tendency, on the other hand, to push things off into the future. And part of the reason that we do that, uh, I think, is... Uh, our desire to hold on to the things that we are attached to. It's sort of like Augustine saying, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And so when we push something like uh, the deification into the future, to the end times, rather than to the present moment, uh, we are preventing ourselves from embracing the fullness of life that Christ has made possible for us we are to be christ in reality for one another because we bear christ within us and the holy spirit as well and uh you know i think in, as with so many things that we've talked about we often know it by its opposite by its lack by our perhaps our failure to live this fully and perhaps because we haven't tasted it or embraced it, it's hard for us to imagine what that would look like. And I think that's part of the reason, too, that we push things off to the future, that we fear, what, what, what would it be to be clothed with Christ, to, put, to embrace the life that he's made possible for us fully, to become what we receive at the holy altar? And, uh, you know, I think for many of us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it would mean too much of a change of our life, we think, or sacrifice, uh, having to give up things that we see as necessary for our identity. And uh, part of that is our struggle for faith, the weakness of our faith, and our ability to see what God has given us in his son. So it's a great, it's not a dumb question. In fact, it's the opposite. It's an excellent question that uh, it, we are, and we need to ask ourselves. We talked, I think, last week a little bit about St. Francis's little mantra, his prayer that he would say to himself daily, who are you, God? Who am I? Who are you? Who am I? And it's almost the perfect prayer. You know, it's uh, forces us out of, again, pushing things to the past or to the future and asking ourselves now, who am I? What is my real identity? And how am I to be living my life? 
Let's see, number 18. Do not lift up your neck, creature of earth. For many, though holy and spiritual, were cast from heaven. And so do not presume to lift up your head to, uh, in the sense of losing that, that humility. Uh, because even the angels, those who lived in this radical communion with God, uh, lifted up their head in this prideful way uh, and fell immediately, even though they, they knew uh, and could see with a perfect clarity the consequence uh, of that. And, uh, and we know it also from Adam and Eve, you know, seeking to make themselves equal with God. Knowing, knowing good and evil for themselves, taking uh, what only belongs to God as if it were their own. And so he, again, he who humbles himself is will be exalted. Uh, this is certainly a line from scripture that we would want to have memorized and to repeat to ourselves daily. When the demon of pride gets a foothold in his servants, he appears to them either in sleep or in a waking vision, as though in the form of a holy angel or some martyr, and gives them a revelation of mysteries or a free bestowal of spiritual gifts, so that these unfortunates may be deceived and completely lose their wits. So, you know, there was more than one desert father who le leapt off of a cliff to his death. Uh, thinking that God would protect him or the angels of God would come to protect him lest he dash his foot against a stone. And so, you know, we are capable of these great delusions in the spiritual life. And the evil one has the capacity to put before us uh, knowing all that the evil one knows and uh, uh, can put things before us in order to tempt us to take hold of them that we can have a craving, even like the people in Jesus' day, it is a wicked generation that longs for signs. And there is a part of us that longs to be, uh, uh, have something revealed to us that convinces us and uh, that proves to us. And this is one of the things uh, that Jesus asked repeatedly, show us a sign, you know, to, to prove the truth of what you are saying. And the only sign that is given will be the sign of Jonah, he says, three days in the belly of the whale, three days in the earth, three days in the grave, and the resurrection. This is the sign that will pierce the hearts and bring about conversion. Uh, but the evil one has this capacity to put forward these things that are miraculous. And there's always a danger to them because they can be ever so convincing and feel ever so concrete to us and good and as if they are from God. And, uh, you know, as you know, I bring Philip Neri up a lot here. And he said, those who crave for visions and ecstasies do not know what they ask do not know what they desire, that to have such things is a weight and a burden uh, because they have to be tested uh, and they can also be this form of temptation. And so he would, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, he said, if you have a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary, spit on her. Because if it is the Blessed Virgin, she's not going to care and she's going to be happy that you put this to the test. If it's the evil one, he will disappear. And uh, But the saints across the board say, even if what we do receive is genuine and been confirmed by our spiritual director, elder, has been put to the test, that what we are to cling to is the faith that it produces, not the reality itself. And so try to reproduce that in our life or place ourselves in jeopardy by thinking that we are special 
or that God has given us these special gifts that we can produce at will. And, uh, you know, when we live in a time uh, where there is often a desire to uh, produce a certain spiritual state or to put oneself in a spiritual state, uh, sometimes, and I don't want to be overgeneralized things here, but sometimes uh, people will not put that to the test, you know, as if spiritual gifts can emerge on, on demand in such a, such a way. And, you know, Paul warns us about this, that some of the things that we think are great are the least of the gifts of God, that the most important are faith, hope, and love. And really, love, he tells us, is the one thing that endures eternally. And that's what we should see, we should be seeking above all. All the way, uh, all the rest passes into nothingness. And so we should not cling for them or even crave for them. Uh, one of my little favorite sayings from Therese is, and it's a little harsh to hear. She prayed once, I long for, or said once, I long for a love that is not felt. And for us, it's it's a jarring thought, but it's she longed for a love that was of the Lord that was based purely on her faith in him and his goodness, not upon what she received or what she felt. And that there was this, even this desire on her part to move to a Carmel that was more obscure than her own and did not have her sisters there to support her, her, her bio, biological sisters. And, uh, and so, you know, she reveals to us here, again, what is most important, that we, what we want to foster is this faith in the Lord that this is what allows us to see what we need to see and to be faithful to God as the son was faithful to the father. But it also helps us to avoid the dangers of craving for the extraordinary. And, you know, it's so many things today are exciting, you know, with technology and fill us with a kind of wonder. Uh, but if we become cap allow our hearts to become captivated by those things, then we can neglect uh, fostering the, what really should give rise to true wonder within the human heart. The capacity to see through faith and through purity of heart, the depth of God's love and compassion. Uh, this is what should fill the heart with wonder. And uh, I think the evil one can use all these things, the work, even the work of our own hands, you know, of technology to, again, make us be filled with wonder of what we've created and what we have done. And so to lose ourselves in it. Any comments or questions before we move on to the next Okay. Even if we endure 10,000 deaths for Christ, even so we shall not repay all that is due. For the blood of God and the blood of his servants are quite different. And here I mean the dignity and not the actual physical substance. So what is offered for us? You know, again, we can have this sense of Christ passion as being limited to, limited to the physical you know what was endured for the number of hours spent upon the cross or what was endured on the physical level in the scourging and the crowning with thorns and certainly uh, this is an expression of the outpouring of that love uh, but it it fails to capture uh, the very essence of the vulnerability and the outpouring of love uh, that comes to us from God. And, and I don't know if it was in the Evergatinos group or this group where we we talked about our familiarity with ideas such as an omnipotent God, all-powerful or omniscient God that knows or sees all things, but an omnivulnerable God. 
one, a God who pours himself out, pours out his love fully for love of us, uh, is what we see in Christ and what we see in the cross. And again, this is what should fill us with, with wonder. And I think this is what God or what John is saying here that, that 10,000 deaths or, or the pouring out of the blood of the saints and the martyrs, none of that equals what we have been given to Christ who pours himself out fully, allows himself to be broken and poured out completely. This is why the image of the woman who anoints him for his death is such a powerful one. And why he says, you know, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done here will be proclaimed. It was this expensive jar of nard, of, of perfumed oil, and she crushes it, the whole thing, and pours it, pours it over, over him. And it be, is, becomes this powerful symbol for him of what is going to take place upon the cross. And uh, likewise, again, when we go back to the scriptures and we hear him say, you know, I've come to set fire upon the earth and oh, how I wish it was burning, a longing again to pour forth that spirit of love upon the wood of the cross, to let, uh, not to constrain it. And it's hard to think of that, you know, that in the miracles, that take place, that there still is this kind of constraint of, of that love that will be poured out and revealed perfectly on the cross. Uh, and so John wants us to understand that the things that we endure through this life, while they require great faith and can be a great expression of our love for God, we, we don't want to lose perspective here in the sense of that our, our response is one of gratitude. You know, our, our giving ourselves over to the Lord because we know that he's held nothing back from us. Number 21. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. There's a com comment here. Ashley writes, uh, comment on paragraph 19, I think this can be really true if we aren't discerning. For example, uh, I'll throw myself under the bus. A priest and I were talking recently about how before bed, I'll sometimes get carried away by higher theological thoughts and inspirations. And I'll be drawn out of rest and end up awake for hours longer than I planned, which obviously makes me tired for the responsibilities of the next day. The priest sounds, said, it sounds like a distraction or a temptation. And I hadn't thought about that because I didn't think about these beautiful things or contemplation of things, deeper truths. I didn't have time for during the day as devils in disguise to keep me from sleep. So when I tested this, sure enough, they went away when I prayed for deliverance if these seemingly good things were actually temptations, distractions from the great good of getting enough sleep. Absolutely. You know, I think it's a, actually a wonderful example of the kind of temptation that we can be drawn to, or that the evil one, and as you said in paragraph 19, can put before us these high thoughts, these things that seemingly draw us into contemplation of the things of God, you know, is it really from God or is it, a, as uh, you said, a kind of, you know, disguised temptation to make us linger long, longer than we should in order that we become weak and unable to fulfill the will of God the next day and our responsibilities and, and duties. And uh, this can take place uh, even in, in prayer itself. And I think this is why we find um, amongst the Eastern Fathers this uh, preference and instruction to embrace a more uh, discursive, non-discursive kind of prayer. That not to allow our imagination to run wild or to carry us beyond where God would want to bring us. 
Uh, not again that I'm saying that imagination and reason and uh, that isn't used in our prayer or meditation uh, upon the things of God. It certainly is, but uh, the evil one can make us linger, even pull us away from a greater intimacy with the Lord and true contemplation, which is this uh, walking in the darkness of faith. Uh, he can make us linger upon these things that our, our mind, our intellect, our reason is unpacking, making us you know, feel that we are sort of reaching the heavens in our contemplation of divine things. And, uh, and so both in regards to distracting us from the rest we need, it can also, they can also become distractions in times of prayer, uh, where God is simply drawing us into the silence in order that we might listen to him. And uh, I'll repeat myself again, uh, the, the Carthusian who said, you know, that silence allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself. And when, and so silence, as Isaac tells us, is the language of the kingdom. And uh, because it is in and through this silence and, and, and also in and through the darkness of faith that God can reveal himself to us as he is in himself in a way that is beyond our words, our understanding. He draws us into an intimacy with him. He gives us a light that allows us to perceive him as he is himself. And you can imagine that the evil ones would want to prevent that and to distract us from that silence or to make that silence something that is difficult or painful for us, rather than allowing us to rest our mind and enter into it fully. And, uh, and so we have to be discerning. And this is where I think spiritual direction is important as well, that we can be attentive to what God is doing in our life because sometimes he is drawing us into this prayer of the quiet or greater stillness and silence. And we can gravitate back to what has served us well in the past and that what has seemed to bear such great fruit for us. And it can be very hard to let it go. And if you remember, John of the Cross speaks of it as a ligature, a break, that it can be really difficult to break with what served us well to allow ourselves to be drawn on into this darkness, the dark night. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the fathers want us to be wary of this as well, uh, not to allow ourselves, as, as Ashley is saying here, to be uh, pulled away by even what appears to the imagination and the mind to be something that is great. Art writes, the sacrifice of the mass is greater than the sacrifice of a martyr. That's right. And what it is that we receive there, uh, you know, includes that. I mean, we receive the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and we are drawn into this radical union and communion with all the saints and martyrs. Uh, but what we receive in the Holy Mass is greater than anything. And this is why, you know, we shouldn't allow or look to things as being excuses to prevent us from going to Mass or Divine Liturgy. Uh, it should be, I, I came across this today, it should be the excuse for us to let go of and get out of everything else. I'm going to Mass. And... Uh, in, in campus ministry all those years, that was often a hard thing to communicate to students that about the prayer life, that so much weight is put on study and so much fear can be tied to it, that there can be this uh, a tendency to put one's prayer life on par with everything else or even on a lower level. And so if I get busy or if I have a lot of assignments, then I'm not going to pray this day, or I'm not going to hold on to my prayer roll or go to mass. 
and uh, and this is a subtle temptation. Uh, all the students that I've known who've been the most free and the most joyful and never had to pull an all-nighter were those whose lives were ordered and directed toward God, who were able to enter into their work and work hard, very hard, but not to the point of losing sight of their identity and where true joy was to be found. And it's when we begin to labor under fear and pressure that things take us longer. In any case, students are filled with uh, procrastination anyways. If you can go out and play Frisbee <laughs> and it's a sunny day, you're not going to be worried about your studies and uh, it doesn't take too much to get us away from it anyways. Okay. Number 21. We should constantly be examining and comparing ourselves with the Holy Fathers and the lights who live before us. And we should then find that we have not yet entered upon the path of the ascetic life and have not kept our vow in holy fashion and in disposition are still living in the world. And so, you know, to hold before our eyes uh, the, the lives of the saints. And even the saints tell us this, to read, St. Philip Neri again said, read things that begin with S sacred scripture or the lives and the writings of St. Augustine or St. Thomas, you know, that these are the, the things that we are to read because this is what stirs up our passion or our desire for God. But it also allows us to see very clearly that we aren't at the height of the ascetic life and that our desire often isn't what it should be and that we can often live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And so to have this image of the holy ascetics always before us can spur us on and lead us to, to run the race and fight the good fight of faith. A monk, properly speaking, is he whose soul's eye does not look haughtily and whose bodily feeling is unmoved. And so whose soul's eye uh, it's an interesting phrase, and uh, we've talked a little bit about this in the past. The Father's using uh, the, the word noose, or eye of the heart, eye of the soul, and uh, that uh, if it's purified uh, of the passions and the ascetic life, and through prayer and through the grace of the sacrament, sacraments, it's not going to look haughtily at others. The only thing that it's going to look fiercely at is our own sin or temptation that is coming to us in order to strike it down. So if it's a good gauge as to how pure our heart is, is if, if we cannot look at another harshly, and whose bodily feeling is unmoved, that the appetites have been ordered toward God. And that one, again, is aware that we are in this constant state of receptivity in and through our senses. And so having fostered watchfulness of heart, attentiveness to what is going on in the mind and heart, that we can remain unmoved by the things going on around us that agitate the heart or drive us to anger or become a distraction uh, from the things of God. And, you know, when we live in a world that is hyper-stimulating, that can be more difficult than one imagines to, to live with one's mind and heart and appetites directed towards God and at peace. Number 23. A monk is he who calls his enemies to combat like wild beasts and provokes them as they flee from him. And so, John, as we've talked about in the past, and as he said, uh, that we are to be those who enter into the spiritual battle, not with pride, 
but with confidence in what God gives us, with the grace that he gives us. And so we are to fight the good fight of faith, and we are to engage in that spiritual battle, not in a timid fashion, but fearlessly, even when uh, we seem to be attacked from every quarter, and we're assaulted by temptations that don't seem to cease, or we seem close to being overcome, that we rouse ourselves to hold on to prayer, no matter what, what it is that might happen to us. And uh, to hold on, say, for example, to praying the Jesus prayer until the assault of the thoughts cease, not to give up, but wait until that wave of thoughts uh, no longer persist. And often we give up very quickly. You know, I tried, you know, and then three minutes later, we've given ourselves over to the, the temptations that are pulling us in one direction or another. And so it's, again, it's, it's not to be arrogant here, but as, as John says, it's to be a plucky fighter. You know, that we engage in it without fear and to drive them away from, from us. Because if they see that we are timid, or if we don't drive them away with a kind of ferocity, then it can be, it can reveal a kind of attachment to the th very things that they are leading us toward. So if we half-heartedly engage in the battle, it's revealing something really important to the demons. Whereas if we're, we are chasing them away, it's telling them that we've lost that attachment. And so we are less likely to be provoked. A monk experiences unceasing rapture of mind and sorrow of life. Hmm. This is a tough one. So rapture of mind, to, to live in the peace of Christ, a peace that nothing in this world can take away from us. But to obtain that peace means letting go of the peace of this world, to know and to experience the sorrows of living in a fallen world, and to receive the hatred and the animosity uh, that this world offers us, as, as well as, again, the ceaseless attacks of the demons that uh, Christianity is not a kind of self-help uh, plan, uh, or, and it's not necessarily going to make our life easier. In fact, Christ promises pretty much the opposite. You will be hated by all. They will think that they are serving God by putting you to death. You know, so... Uh, that becomes a very important thing in the spiritual life, not only in our struggle with the demons, but I think our, of our experience of the hardship of life as a whole, that uh, sometimes we will fall into a kind of despondency, uh, kind of spiritual depression, and feel that God has abandoned us because of the sorrows that we experience in this in this life. For example, if if we, in our intimacy with him, also experience something of the betrayal of love that he experienced, uh, and our hearts are pierced because of it, we can feel, we can think that God has abandoned us in some way, or has not protected us. But in reality, if we make ourselves vulnerable in love, as he makes himself vulnerable, arms outstretched, in the embrace of those around us. Inevitably, we will experience that kind of betrayal. Uh, and if we know and understand that, it's, it's not as though it makes it easy for us to undergo those sorrows or that it elevates us again, or that we are Stoics. In fact, just the opposite. We see those things and feel those things with a greater intensity. 
love allows us to to see with this kind of perfect clarity. This is why, again, uh, Mary's heart is pierced with a sword of sorrow. It's the depth of her love and humility that allows her to see and experience what her son sees and experiences uh, on the cross, mystically, but nonetheless, truly. And those who seek this intimacy with him in this world, eventually we are going to taste that metal of that sword piercing through our hearts, whether it's the loss of a loved one or chronic illness or betrayal or rejection because of our faith, that all of these things are a participation in the cross and the participation in his redemptive and his redemptive work of uniting our sufferings to his own. Christianity doesn't take suffering away. What, you know, what it does is it sanctifies it. It allows it to become something holy for us. And not only for us, but for others, for the world. And if there's a time that the world needs divine love, it's now. And it might be this love that is completely hidden to the eyes of the world that holds the world together when it seems to be in chaos and falling apart at the seams. Okay. Number 25. A monk is one who is conditioned by virtues as others are by pleasures. So, Virtue becomes habitual. It shapes the patterns of one's mind. And we become conditioned uh, by the forming of the mind and the heart to look for it or to look for the path that opens us up to virtue or the path that is virtuous. You know, so often I think in our lesser moments or in our weakness, we will look for the path that is easiest or that allows us to escape the sufferings that might be for us. I, you know, I think we've all had those crazy thoughts, you know, when we have to go do something that we really don't want to do, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get in a car wreck here and I'll be prevented from getting there. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's lunacy, but there can be a part of us that so dreads, even the thought of bearing a cross, uh, you know, you know one, one of the greatest fears is of people, even greater than death, is public speaking. And for all those who fear public speaking, I'll tell you that's real. They'd rather get in a car wreck and be, ser be seriously wounded than to have to get up in front of a room and give a talk. And... Uh, no joke. I mean, it's just uh, a, vis a visceral kind of fear there. And But for the one who's living in that peace of Christ, uh, that fear begins to dissipate. And because, again, we're, we're participating in an invincible peace and an invincible hope and love, the peace of the kingdom. So what, what do we have to fear when nothing can be lost to us? Nothing. Nothing at all. And, you know, more often than not, we're looking for greater and greater defenses, things that, again, will protect us from things that can hurt us, rather than entering into the one thing alone that promises us peace of mind and heart and freedom from fear, which is the love of Christ. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30. So we'll stop there this evening. And uh, just remember, next week, uh, I'm going to be away 
on a retreat or giving a retreat. And so the groups won't happen next week, but this is the last time I'm going away this year. And I don't think I'll be accepting any requests to do retreats or give talks for a long time uh, after doing two in one month. Uh, so uh, I don't like inconsistency in the group. So, so I'm sorry about this coming week, but we'll get right back to it and uh, immersed in it, okay? So pray for me next week, if you all would. Uh, I'd, I'd appreciate it. When we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.